Welcome everyone. I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to the support of Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobook selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I often use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is either a book I personally read or listened to through Audible, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless if you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a pretty good deal. So visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Stay tuned after the show where I will give you my audiobook recommendation. My second announcement is Patreon. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. We also have an event coming up in February, honoring the 76th anniversary of Iwo Jima. Details are currently on Patreon, And I'll post this on social media as we get closer. But holy crap, if there is one historical monument to support, this is it. This monument was built for Iwo Jima survivors by Iwo Jima survivors. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. I'll include a link in the podcast description as well. Thanks for your time and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 53 of History of the Marine Corps, The American-Indian Wars, Part 2. Last week's episode covered the origin of Native American relationships in North America. We covered a few disputes between Native tribes and European settlers during the 1600s, and the episode ends by looking at how competing European nations took advantage of Native American allies. We also look at the action of Native American tribes and the massacre of European settlers. This episode continues with Native American-United States relations after the American Revolution. We cover a few skirmishes between local tribes and Marines and end the episode by introducing the First Creek and Seminole Wars. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. After the American Revolution, the United States was the dominant force in North America. The number of Native American tribes was in the 600s, and although there were some confederacies, the scope of these communities did not compare to United States forces. For example, the Iroquois Confederacy was one of the most organized and effective nations. 
The five original tribes in the Iroquois Confederacy were the Mohawks, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, and Seneca. The Tuscarora would join the Confederacy later, in 1722. At their height, their population was around 12,000, with only 2,200 of whom were capable of fighting. Even after United States forces were disbanded or minimized, the Confederacy's army's size wasn't strong enough to face the U.S. military. And we spoke about this before on the podcast, but it was common practice to diminish the nation's military after war. The thought was simple. If we weren't at war, what's the point of spending the money on a military force to sit around? Some founding fathers even thought keeping a military during peace can threaten the country's liberty. This threat sounds counterintuitive today, but this was a time before the United States Constitution was signed, and a robust central authority didn't exist to keep the military in check. The Articles of Confederation existed, but it had little power, and many states didn't support it. The U.S. was caught off guard during the War of 1812, and the view of sustaining a strong military during peace changed. However, despite minimizing the military and keeping an army just small enough to defend against Native American raids, the Confederacy was not powerful enough to face the United States. Before the American Revolution came to an end, and the Marine Corps disbanded, Marines started to confront Native Americans. The interactions were rare, which was due to a couple of reasons. One, the Army was responsible for defending against Native American raids, and they saw most of the confrontations with Native American tribes. And two, the Marines spent most of their time at sea or guarding naval vessels. This was the primary mission of the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps and the Navy were a team, and both branches complemented each other well, which led to their fantastic success at sea. Marines faced Native American tribes with the Army during a couple of battles in the American Revolution. But the first documented account I found of Marines solely encountering Native Americans happened in 1780. Captain Dennis Leary led a small detachment of Marines in Reading, Pennsylvania. They had a unique mission. The Board of Admiralty requested that Captain Leary and a group of Marines superintend the workmen in the nearby forest. The lumberjacks were chopping down trees to be used as masts for naval ships. In Reading, Pennsylvania, the woods were populated by a violent Native American tribe who repeatedly attacked local settlements. On August 27th, Captain Leary was notified about Native Americans attacking a house about a mile from his camp. He immediately marched to the house with four Marines and found the father and two children dead. There was a third child, but she was kidnapped by the raiding party. Captain Leary buried the father and two children, and the following day, he gathered ten Marines and pursued the Native Americans. On their way, they teamed up with Captain Balti and the next morning, Colonel Lintmuth, with about 50 additional men. The group searched for the missing girl for four days, but they never found her. When the men returned, they found that the same tribe burned down a house and a barn, and this time they took a little boy with them as well. The following day, Captain Leary wrote a letter to William Moore, the Pennsylvania Council's vice president. In his letter, 
Leary described a man pretending to be a carpenter. Leary took in the carpenter, but a few days later he received a letter from the man's wife warning him that the carpenter was determined to scalp him. The carpenter was arrested and taken to a local jail. Leary's only comment to a spy infiltrating his command and pretending to be a carpenter solely to scalp him is the perfect Marine answer. Quote, seemed a little extraordinary, unquote. The purpose of Leary writing this letter to Moore was to explain the sophistication of the attacking tribes and request more reinforcements and supplies. His letter worked, and the Board of Admiralty requested the Pennsylvania authorities send, quote, 50 or $60, unquote, to Captain Leary to assist him and the Marines in protecting the workmen under his charge. Although Captain Leary received resources to protect the workmen, the little girl and little boy were never found. From March 9th through September 9th, 1782, Marine Captain Jacob Pyatt and a company of Marines were assigned to General George Roger Clark's command and participated in his campaigns against Native American tribes. This was one of the last interactions Continental Marines had with Native Americans. September 1783 saw the last Continental Marine with Congress's decision to disband the Marine Corps. Marines still served on board ships after the Marine Corps was disbanded, but they didn't belong to any organized corps. They just simply held the title. But with the Marines out of the picture, the new United States encountered different threats from local Native American tribes. Villages turned into towns, and towns turned into cities. U.S. citizens living in larger cities such as Boston, Baltimore, and Philadelphia faced relatively no threat from Native American tribes. However, the further west you traveled, the more the threat changed. The west was a new place for the United States, and they were facing a different group of Native Americans. Although the tribes were different, the scenario still played out similarly to the early settlements on the east coast. Americans would settle in a new land. Native Americans would initially be curious about their new guests and welcome them to the area. And eventually, either Native Americans or United States citizens would attack their new neighbors. And another conflict would break out. Like with every other war in history, the people fighting these battles had a different view than political leaders. The United States recognized Native American tribe sovereignty on paper but this meant little to Native Americans. They saw new settlements, regardless if they were U.S. or other European colonies, as another tribe encroaching in on their territory. The farmers and settlers didn't care that the United States considered Native American tribes as sovereign nations. Regardless of the political jargon you give to them, they were being murdered. They wanted help and demanded the United States provide protection. In the late 1780s, the primary area of conflict was north of the Ohio River, in what is Ohio and Indiana today. A confederacy was made up of the Algonquin people, from the Chippewa, Miami, Potawatomi, and Shawnee tribes. They were led by a phenomenal tactician, Michikinaqua, also known as Little Turtle, the chief of the Miami tribe. In 1790, Brigadier General Josiah Harmer took a small army with him, consisting of militia and some U.S. Army soldiers, 
toward an area heavily populated by Native Americans. They were looking to wipe out the enemy. But when Harmer's men were navigating through a narrow pass, they were ambushed by Little Turtle. Most of the militiamen fled the battle without even firing a shot. The regular soldiers put up a brief resistance, but the American Indians killed most of them. The following year, Major General Arthur Sinclair took 1,400 troops to confront Little Turtle, but again, the United States faced another defeat. St. Clair lost 65% of his men during this battle. It wouldn't be until 1794 that the United States would defeat Little Turtle. Army General Mad Anthony Wayne took 3,000 troops with him to modern-day Toledo and destroyed the Native American Confederacy, taking few casualties in the process. The Northwest Territory would still be a factor for another 17 years. In 1811, the United States prepared the response to Britain taking American merchantmen and forcing them into military service. Impressment was necessary for Britain's recruitment, but the United States was adamantly against Britain impressing U.S. citizens. Rightfully so. And the U.S. declared war on Great Britain. Great Britain started to align with local Native American tribes to help fight the United States. The Shawnee tribe would provide the leadership for this war, and two brothers emerged as the men who would lead the Confederacy against the United States. Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. When the War of 1812 started, Tecumseh started an alliance with Great Britain. Not only would he align with the British, but he would ride into some battles wearing a British officer's red coat. Tecumseh and Britain rode together and captured Detroit and attacked multiple forts and villages throughout the area. Battle after battle, the Native Americans and British soldiers destroyed the United States Army. We cover some of the embarrassing actions during our episodes covering the War of 1812. It wouldn't be until the Marines and the Navy take Lake Erie, a battle discussed during the episode titled The British Head Towards Washington, that Tecumseh was defeated. With Lake Erie controlled by the United States, British General Henry Proctor decided the best move was to evacuate the nearby fort and head east towards Lake Ontario. Tecumseh was with Proctor during this decision, and the Native American leader thought this was a cowardly move. He wanted to stay and fight. But the U.S. Army captured the enemy's incoming food supply, heavy guns, and around 200 soldiers, and Proctor was able to convince Tecumseh to retreat, with the stipulation that they would make a stand at the forks of the Thames. As U.S. forces closed in on Proctor, he and his men started to panic. They understood their fate. But the way Proctor and his men handled themselves disgusted Tecumseh and his Native American army. Many warriors disappeared into the forest while the British army marched forward. Some British soldiers followed the retreating Native Americans. On October 5th, the U.S. Army caught up to the British. They were 50 miles east of Detroit on the Thames River when the two forces met. By this time, many of the Native Americans and British soldiers fled. The British's total strength was 1,500 soldiers, 500 of which were Native Americans. The battle was short and was over in 30 minutes. The most significant outcome of this battle was the death of Tecumseh. 
How Tecumseh died isn't precisely known. One account claims that Richard Johnson, who would later become the ninth vice president of the United States, made the killing shot. But evidence doesn't exist that supports this theory. His burial site is another unknown, but the death of Tecumseh would impact more than the British. He was an advocate for Native American traditions. And one of the few who was able to bring together tribes and fight against the United States for the preservation of their way of life. Proctor was able to escape with about 250 of his men. This retreat would follow Proctor back to London, and he was court-martialed for his actions on the Thames. He faced five charges. Failing to prevent supplies and ammunition from falling into enemy hands. Caused the retreat to slow down due to carrying too much baggage. Neglected to fortify positions on the Thames. Failed to prepare to meet the enemy and failed to rally and encourage his troops. He was publicly reprimanded and suspended without rank or pay for six months, but he never returned to the army. British and American representatives signed the Treaty of Ghent, signifying the end of the War of 1812. After the treaty was signed, the British completely abandoned Native Americans. They no longer needed tribes to fight the enemy, and Native Americans were once again left to fight for themselves. During the War of 1812, Marines would face a couple of battles with Native Americans. On September 12, 1812, Marine Captain John Williams, described as a sensitive, frustrated 47-year-old Virginian, led a detachment of 20 Marines and Georgia militia. Their mission was to escort two supply wagons 22 miles from their base near St. Augustine to Davis Creek. The Marines were in rough shape. They hadn't eaten in days, many were sick with fever, and most of their clothes were cut to shreds from months of shore duty with the Army. The morale was extremely low, and everyone is angry that they had to serve on land instead of where they should be, on a ship. In the surrounding area were Native Americans from the Seminole tribe and runaway slaves, who teamed up with the Native Americans. The force was about 70 strong. On their way to Davis Creek, the Marines were ambushed. The first to be shot was Captain Williams and his sergeant. The Marines took up defensive position along the route and returned fire. The Native Americans and escaped slaves would overpower the Marines, take one of the wagons, destroyed the other, and left. Captain Williams was wounded too severely to be moved, so he hid in some bushes while the remaining Marines headed for help. The Marines arrived the following morning and found Captain Williams. His left arm and right leg had been broken. His right arm, left leg, and his stomach was shot. The Marines searched the area and found six more wounded, and the sergeant who fell at the beginning of the battle stripped and scalped. Somehow, Captain Williams survived the torturesome situation. He wrote a letter to Lieutenant Colonel Commandant Franklin Wharton stating, quote, You may expect that I am in dreadful situation, though I yet hope I shall recover in a few months. Unquote. However, Williams wouldn't be so lucky this time. He was moved to a nearby plantation house to recover, but died on September 29th. Although a sad situation, this seems like a relatively small blip in the grand scheme of things. 
However, the Florida Historical Society argues that this single event changed the United States' decision to take Spanish East Florida by force. Before Captain Williams' defeat, the United States had St. Augustine, controlled the critical port on Amelia Island, and had a significant army. The ambush and loss of supplies caused the United States to abandon St. Augustine, and the U.S. ultimately withdrew from the area. Talk about unattended consequences. Before William's letter reached the Commandant, Wharton ordered Lieutenant Alexander Severe, who had been on leave from Captain William's command, to report back to his location. As soon as word reached the Commandant that Williams was dead, Wharton updated those orders, and Severe was to receive command of the Marines. According to the muster roll on September 30, 1812, by Ensign J. Ryan of the 3rd U.S. Infantry, there were 56 Marines stationed there. Colonel Neil Newman oversaw the entire operation in the area, and he gathered a force, some of whom were Marines, to attack Payne and Bowlegs, the two chiefs in charge. On September 27th, 150 Native Americans attacked the Americans. Payne and multiple Native Americans were killed during the attack, while the United States had one dead and nine wounded. Native Americans would attack six more times before daybreak, but were repulsed by American forces. The U.S. fought their way through swamps, living off alligators, gophers, and palmetto stalks until they reached Picolata. On December 21st, the Commandant wrote Lieutenant Severe on his, quote, safe return from a fatiguing expedition. The service on which you are now engaged will, I imagine, give you frequent toils in that way, which your good health and youth together will, I hope, enable you to surmount, unquote. When Colonel Newman returned, he immediately assembled a group of soldiers, Marines, and volunteers on February 9th. The group left to attack the Indians. Payne's town was destroyed on February 9th, and Bowleg's town the next day. During this engagement, the Americans had one killed and seven wounded, while the Native Americans lost an extraordinary amount. On April 25, 1813, Commodore Chauncey took a fleet of 14 ships and sailed from Sackett's Harbor to attack York. Quote, My whole force, exclusive of seamen and marines, who will be confined to the vessels and have no share in the action, until my whole force shall be worsted, amounts to nearly 3,000 exclusives of 45 militia at Brownsville, unquote. Shortly after their arrival, Marines would land with army troops of Colonel McComb's regiment and fight the British and Native Americans for Fort George on Lake Ontario. This was another significant battle, and the Marines were responsible for the success. Quote, the capture of Toronto has determined the superiority on Lake Ontario of the United States Marine, unquote. But with Tecumseh's defeat and the British no longer interested in North America, the United States started to flourish. Many United States citizens believe that it was destined, by God, that the U.S. was meant to expand its presence, spread democracy, and capitalism across the entire North American continent. This belief was the United States' manifest destiny. As the years went on and the American people started to spread throughout North America, contended land began to turn into states. 
From 1812 to 1821, seven states were admitted into the Union. They included Louisiana, Indiana, Mississippi, Illinois, Alabama, Maine, and Missouri. The United States promised this land to Native Americans, but broken promise after broken promise caused Native Americans to move further west, past the Mississippi River, while U.S. citizens took over their territory. This territorial expansion resulted in Native Americans being frustrated and desperate as they fight for land that once belonged to them. Raids started to pick up again, and the United States would begin to see attacks in Alabama and other southern states. The Creek and Seminole Indians began to push back. This escalation would be the beginning of a string of events that would bring us back full circle to our discussion about Archibald Henderson and his famous sign, quote, Gone to Florida to fight the Indians. We'll be back when the war is over. Unquote. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we cover the first Creek and Seminole Wars and review the events that lead to the Marines getting involved to the sequel of these two wars. Welcome to History of the Marine Corps' book recommendation. This week's suggestion is Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of the Mass Media by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. We've heard the term fake news thrown around for the past decade. This book provides case study after case study critiquing how the mainstream media is defending the economic, social, and political agendas of powerful groups and how propaganda plays a significant role in manufacturing consent with the U.S. population. This book doesn't favor one political side. It exposes the propaganda model used by the media. We all can relate to the story of a friend who was strongly opposed to one political view only to flip-flop when the wind started to blow in the other direction. This book helped me understand why. I've read it multiple times during the past decade, and it's fascinating and a little sad to see how propaganda can impact a society. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of choices available on Audible. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. Visit the link in the description to visit our page. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.